Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. The most popular episode we have ever recorded for the podcast is our conversation with Pete Walker about complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is often abbreviated as CPTSD. As you might expect, CPTSD is a cousin of post-traumatic stress disorder. But while PTSD can originate from a single, painful, highly traumatic event, complex PTSD is the result of ongoing traumatic experiences, typically but not always ones that have their roots in childhood. These experiences include everything from physical or emotional abuse to inconsistent or neglectful parenting, to resource scarcity, to needing to manage the emotions of your parents as a child. That's a big one. And we think of many of these experiences as traumatic on their own, but complex PTSD often arises from the slow accumulation of many, many small injuries over time. It can include traditional PTSD symptoms like intense traumatic flashbacks, low self-esteem and self-regard, hyperarousal, the avoidance of stimuli related to the event. And in addition to those lovely symptoms, complex PTSD also often includes a lack of emotional regulation in the person who suffers from it. Intense feelings of guilt or shame is a big one, and so is dissociation, including selective amnesia around the events. So today we're going to be putting a more personal touch on the complex PTSD conversation by talking with someone who's both dealing with her own history of complex trauma and helping other people to do the same, my lovely partner, Elizabeth Ferreira. Elizabeth is a recent graduate of the Somatic Psychology Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and she's currently earning hours toward her license. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. I loved having this conversation with Elizabeth. It was really wonderful to talk with her. So here it is. Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm really excited. Great, yeah. I've been kind of giddy about it when I get to come back. (laughs) And for better or worse, I really nerd out on this stuff. So I'm really kind of excited to dive into it. Yeah, well, great. Well, for people who want to relate this to their own experience, because complex PTSD is a very complicated topic, I think, for a lot of people, and it doesn't necessarily get tied to a specific experience that people have, where there's one thing that you can point to and go, oh, that's the thing. This is why I am the way that I am. What was your life like when you were growing up? Speaking from my perspective being in it, I felt like it was normal because Mm -hmm. that's all I knew. Yeah. My parents at the time were very religious. They were Seventh-day Adventists. So, you know, there were a lot of rules and restrictions. I had a lot of limitations on who I could really hang out with. I didn't go to public school. I was homeschooled. My mom stayed home with me. She was the one who also made sure I did my schoolwork and things like that. And my dad worked all the time. When I was younger, he was an iron worker. So, He left the house before I woke up, and often he didn't get home until sometimes late in the evening. When I was really little, he would have to go out of town for like the whole week to go work at a job somewhere. So extremely close to my mom and a bit distant from my dad. Yeah, and very, very normal. A lot Mm -hmm. of people working families have a parent who isn't around until 8, 9 p.m., and so Mm -hmm. there might be a little bit of an availability issue there for a kid growing up. Yeah. Emotionally, how do you feel like your emotions were held as a kid? 
It depended on the emotions. Mm. You know, there was sort of a monopoly on the emotions that I could have and express in front of my parents and the emotions that I couldn't. Yeah. If I cried or if I was moderately upset, my Mm -hmm. mom was usually really good about comforting me, coming and giving me the attention that I needed. My dad kind of okay at it. But if there was any like huge upwelling of emotionality, I think it overwhelmed both of my parents. And Mm. so I learned at a really young age, oh, I can't scream, but I can cry. And I remember being younger and having these moments where like I couldn't control what was happening. I just was having this like upwelling of panic and fear and anxiety kind of exploding out of me. And it would get to a point where my parents would just get mad at me. Mm -hmm. And that was very disruptive for me. And I would feel like, oh, I guess I'm bad or I did something wrong. And Mm -hmm. so I kind of started to learn from a really young age, oh, I have to really control myself. Mm -hmm. I can't do these things in front of my parents. So in your relationship with your parents, based on knowing them as potential future Mm parents-in-law, I know them fairly well, I wouldn't describe either of them as bad people. No. I wouldn't describe either of them as ill-intentioned toward you in any way. If anything, they were quite protective of you or Mm. did the best that they could. But the broader family environment had a lot of complexity associated with it and a lot of, I think it's fair to say, collective and generational trauma that Mm -hmm. went through that family line. What were some of the ways that you think this showed up and how people behaved around each other or acted toward you? It was very dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And my parents did try their best to kind of protect me from the broader family, but both my grandparents on both of my parents' sides are extremely dysfunctional. They have had their own horrific experience with trauma. And I think what that does is that you don't really know how to function like a full adult. Mm. And what I mean by that- Yeah, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so what I mean by that is there's a piece of you that's always trapped in the child that was hurt. And my grandmother, my dad's mom, lashes out a lot like a toddler. Mm. There's always someone that she's mad at. There's always someone that's on the outs, gossiping, saying horrible shit about the other person to get the other people to like you. And my grandma's big thing was like, do you love me more than your parents? Like, you have to Mm. love me more than your mom. Mm -hmm. Because it's like she needed to be loved the most. We talked a little bit a second ago about the emotions that you felt were allowed to you versus the ones that you didn't. You were allowed to cry, but you weren't allowed to scream is Mm -hmm. a line that I've heard you say in the past. How do you feel like you needed to interact with your parents' emotions? Oh, like walking on eggshells? Yeah. I had to really anticipate my parents. I often felt with my dad like I was a bother because Mm -hmm. he would just get home and be tired. And looking back now, I totally get it. He was exhausted. Yeah. And had a lot of pressure to provide for me and my mom. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as a young kid, that just like hits you in a place that you don't really know what to do with because all you can see is like, oh, daddy doesn't like me or daddy doesn't have time for me. So with my dad, I just learned how to give him a lot of space. Yeah. I didn't ask for a whole lot. It it was like I had five minutes maybe out of the day Mm -hmm. of my dad's attention like literally just five minutes. So I had to make those five minutes count. Yeah. And then with my mom, my mom, I'm almost certain that she also has complex PTSD. And I think she's been depressed for most of my life. Mm -hmm. 
And when you have a depressed parent, you kind of don't have someone who you can predict. Mm. Some days my mom wouldn't get out of bed. Other days, you know, she would be really fun and have a lot of energy and we could Mm -hmm. do stuff that like, wow, I really like this. But then there was always this sort of game I would play where it's like, okay, how do I need to be to make my mom happier? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I need to swallow the things that I'm feeling to attune to my mom Mm -hmm. so that we can get through the day? Yeah. Yeah. So to pull this back a little bit, Mm -hmm. because I think that the story is great to really ground the whole, Mm -hmm. the whole system in also in the ways where this is a very normal story. Yeah. But it was housed in a broader ecosystem that you were describing that was dysfunctional. Yeah. That was not emotionally available, where you felt as a child you needed really needed to care for the emotional state of your parents, Mm -hmm. where you needed to be extremely sensitive to very slight movements in parental mood Mm -hmm. because there were heavy consequences for you that were associated with guessing wrong, essentially. You did not feel a lot of social support, not a lot of relationships that were super deep with other kids because you had an environment where while you're being homeschooled, then you're in a church environment where there are a lot of restrictions being placed on you of various kinds. Mm -hmm. Again, very, very normal story. But children are super vulnerable. And the things that happen to us in childhood have cascades now through the rest of our life. And we can see how some of those things that you're pointing to, that hypersensitivity Mm -hmm. could be an example of that. Where now as an adult, maybe you feel like you need to really be on the lookout for little movements in other people because those little movements might mean that a situation is no longer safe. There's, I'm kind of laughing a little bit because there's the trope of the wounded healer Mm -hmm. that sometimes I roll my eyes at a little bit, but there's truth in cliche and there's Mm -hmm. truth in those things. And I think in some level we can glamorize someone who's hypersensitive, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person, but you never attune to the person that's having the best time in the room. Mm. You attune to the person that's having the shittiest time in the room. Yeah. Because that's how your little nervous system developing had to. You had to attune to the parent that was having the worst day Mm -hmm. so that you could monitor it and fix it. And I think, you know, what we're also circling is the parentified child. Yeah, totally. You have two distinct parents. You mm-hmm. never had to parent them. Yeah, never. I've had to be my parents' uh, parent. Parent. I've had to be their therapist. I've had to be their marriage counselor. Like, I have worn a lot of hats in the family that yeah. a kid should not wear. Yeah. And there's something that's been kind of floating in my mind as we've been talking about this that I think is really important. I think sometimes when we hear stories, And like what you're saying, oh, this sounds like a very normal experience. It can be easy to just think you're super sensitive or something's just wrong with me that I didn't fit in with my family or something. And I really attune to this definition of trauma where it's anything that you found overwhelming and you couldn't process through it. Mm -hmm. You couldn't reach a level of resolution. It Mm -hmm. just kind of like the activation stayed in your body. Yeah. And I say that because I was in denial for a really long time Mm. because both my parents have experienced physical abuse, horrific emotional and, you know, neglect. And so I always heard the story of like, you have a great childhood because compared to ours. Yeah. 
And even though it wasn't as horrific, I think there is a huge toll that happens on a child when there is unseen neglect, where there are parts of you that you know exist that you cannot show with your parents. Yeah. And you cannot show with anyone around you. Mm-hmm. And so you become really good at hiding. I don't talk about feeling lonely very often. Yeah. And you talk about feeling lonely pretty frequently. It's a common emotional experience for you, that feeling of internalized loneliness. You're very sensitive to it mm-hmm. in a lovely way. Because I think that from, again, like wounded healer trope and all of that good stuff, yeah. it really helps you relate to other people who are going through similar experiences like that and access the unseen parts of them. Mm-hmm. We're using a lot of language here from IFS, by the way, if you're not familiar, which is the internal family systems it's model great. of therapy. You it's it. great. You should look it up. We've got some episodes <laughs> on it. Basically, the idea is that people are constellations. They are made up of all of these different aspects or parts inside of themselves. And these parts have complicated relationships with each other. And often people, people who go through We all do this, but particularly for people who go through difficult experiences, there are parts of them that get underfed Mm -hmm. inside and they get exiled and kind of cast out of the group. And then part of the journey is to reclaim those parts in healthier ways. And so I think that feeling of loneliness could really be that speaking up and kind of coming forward in that way. Yeah. And just, you know, hearing you say that, like a key piece of me that has been emerging, and I think that to an extent, you've really kind of helped coax into mm. like out of the exiled underverse <laughs> is my sweetness. Yeah, for sure. And like you can kind of hear it if you're listening, but like I'm kind of on the verge of crying, which happens every time I come into contact with anything sweet. Mm. And the reason for that is because my sweetness was viewed as something to be teased and taunted in my mm. family. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like viewed as naive or like too vulnerable. And and I think I've learned that sweetness can be very like fierce and kind of potent because everyone in my family has experienced childhood trauma. Yeah. And so you have this little kid that's just like by nature, extremely sweet and tender. Mm -hmm. And what that does is then it brings up all the welling inside of yourself that you've had to like pack down And not allow yourself to feel that sweetness because, I mean, it can be crushing. Hmm. And that then ties in with the whole kind of like loneliness bit because I start to like attempt to Mm -hmm. be more sweet and it makes people uncomfortable. Hmm. And then I'm super sensitive when people are uncomfortable. So then it reiterates the story of like, I make people uncomfortable. Hmm. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. Which then further makes me feel lonely. Yeah. Yeah. And so you see all these emotional cycles get created inside of stuff, right? Where for you, the emotional experience that wasn't allowed, and there were really two of them, first anger, where you mentioned you weren't allowed to be pissed. No. Even when things happened, that would naturally make somebody, particularly a child, feel pretty angry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the second one is the sweetness aspect, this very vulnerable underlying emotion. And one of those emotions was too big and strong. And one of them was too soft and squishy. Yep. And so those were the ones that got repressed. And okay, now what are we dealing with these days? Those two repressed emotions. Yep. So <laughs> you can kind of think about this if you're listening from your own standpoint and looking back into childhood, regardless of whether or not you would identify as somebody who has complex trauma or not. I would not, obviously, I think pretty clearly. But I can look inside of my own history and go to, okay, what were the emotions that I was really comfy with when I was a kid? 
And what were the emotions that I felt uncomfortable with? Mm -hmm. What were the ones that I didn't feel comfortable expressing? Maybe because they were punished by other kids in some way. Maybe because my family was uncomfortable with them. Maybe because my sibling was uncomfortable with them. Or I had a weird experience with an aunt one time. Or whatever your story is. Like, that's a great way to find a place to work these days. If you're looking for a way in to unearthing some of this stuff, it's a really, really useful question for me. Mm-hmm. Another thing to just throw out there, and I think I needed to have a concrete, almost on paper proof that, Mm. oh, this is complex PTSD. This is me. This is me. Totally. And so I found a really great therapist Mm -hmm. and we were kind of orbiting some things. And at this this phase in my development, (laughs) (laughs) I was a mess. I Mm. was real messy. I was constantly being triggered by my graduate program, which brought me to flashbacks of being a kid and having pretty difficult, challenging experiences, being in my room, school, school, all of that. And he gave me the, what is it? The adverse childhood experience scale. Yeah. Ace. Ace. Mm -hmm. And I got an eight. Which is essentially all of them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it shocked me. (laughs) It legit shocked me. Yeah. And- When I saw that number and then we were talking about it in therapy together, I'm getting slightly emotional. It was like the part of me that had internalized what my parents had always told me of like, Mm, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, finally got to relax. Mm. And then here's a person sitting across from me who's actually attuning to me instead of me attuning to someone else being like, you're not okay. You know, and I really needed that. I needed that mirroring to happen Mm -hmm. in order for me to accept the things that have happened to me. Yeah. And something that runs underneath your history that we've talked about here is what you've alluded to, which is your family's history, your parents' history, Mm -hmm. your grandparents' history. And this is a way in to seeing the ways in which these things can be passed down through families. Yeah. Where your parents, which I've learned a little bit about, you would know, of course, much more than I would went through their own extremely challenging experiences with physical abuse and completely emotionally unavailable families. So on both sides of my lineage, my mom came from a past history where her parents divorced when she was a baby. She lived with her dad who married a woman that had a ton of kids. So she kind of got lost in the crowd. Mm -hmm. Her biological siblings were already struggling. So they kind of teased her and all that. There was a real food scarcity. Her dad was not really emotionally available at all. And then he died when she was about 14, I think, around that age. And then she had to go live with her mom. And my mom's mother, who has passed on also a lot of trauma, I'm pretty sure she had undiagnosed bipolar. Mm. And so my mom went from being invisible to now having a mother that is just like abusive. Mm. (laughs) And my mom left, I think before she was 18 years old, moved to California by herself and had a lot of strength to do that. And then, you know, with my dad, divorced family, my grandmother had him when she was very young. And then there was a famous murder Mm -hmm. that happened in my family that my, you know, my dad's brother was murdered in and the aunt that he often says was 
kind of like a second mom, you know, was murdered and taken away. And then my dad also experienced a lot of abuse from his stepfather, mm. a lot of physical, emotional abuse. So my parents had enough awareness to know the things that have happened to them. And they were like, we don't want to do this with our kid. And so in many ways, they tried to do the opposite. So I was never like physically abused like they were. I always had enough food. I always had a home and things like that. But, you know, what happened to my parents, you move out another generation out of that and it gets even more horrific. Mm -hmm. When you look at my genogram, which is a way of kind of like tracking all the trauma that has occurred in a family, in many ways, my parents stopped a lot of that from touching me. Yeah. But it wasn't enough to get me to like be unscathed by it. Totally. And so like, I love my parents. I really value that they stopped a lot of patterns. But when a system is as toxic as mine was, often that insular is not enough. And you really need to like step away from it and find a really good therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's a great way to talk about the ways in which generations can, can hand the baton on. Yeah. And the goal is not to, a lot of the time, is not to repair everything that has happened to a person because Mm -hmm. these are generational things. People hand the baton to the next generation and they try to put you in a better position than they were in. Mm -hmm. And it's also what makes the conversation sometimes inside of families so complicated around, this is my experience. Because your felt experience was one way Mm-hmm. But compared to their felt experience, mm-hmm. it seemed a very different way. Yeah. And that's just hard translation. That is a conversational challenge inside of a family for one generation to appreciate while, yes, things may be better, but still there are these challenging experiences that need to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, I think because I was protected in many ways by my parents, at a pretty young age, I was seeing dysfunction that I didn't want to participate in. Yeah, totally. In the broader family system. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and I kind of became the, there was a phase in my relationship with my broader family where I think I was viewed as the black sheep in some ways because I just started saying no. Mm. I just started saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going to have a relationship with you. Yeah. And that was really challenging to be the only one in your family who's like consciously seeing these things and going, this is kind of messed up. I don't, yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. And I think this is what makes my particular kind of soup of complex PTSD a little challenging because to this day, I still get flashbacks. Mm. Like to this day, I can still have moments where, boom, I am right back in a moment in time when something awful happened. And I don't know if those will ever go away. But over time, the thing that I've noticed is that I'm, I don't stay in it as long as I did before. And I think part of why those flashbacks aren't as severe at this moment is because there was also a part of me that knew what was happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that quite makes sense outside of my system, <laughs> but it was like there was always a part of me that was watching what was happening mm. instead of being consumed by it. Mm -hmm. You can call that healthy dissociation, which I'm like a fan of it. You know, (laughs) thank God for dissociation. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, these are coping mechanisms. Yeah. And 
Our coping mechanisms, as we've talked about a lot on the podcast, are often very intelligent. Mm -hmm. Your body, your brain, your system creates a way out of pain. Yeah. And the mechanism that might have been really useful to you back then can become a little bit of an issue in the here and now. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't discount how useful it was and how helpful it was and how supportive of you it was. And, and it can be helpful to see that too, the ways in which our behaviors aren't our fault, but they can become our responsibility over time. Mm -hmm. So a little healthy dissociation, if that works for a person, okay, yeah, create the space for that. While also going, all right, I don't want to default to this constantly. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is something that I really see as I've started to moonlight as a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> but with my family, there's a mm -hmm. lot of resistance to going to therapy. Yeah. And I think because the terror of knowing mm. is way worse than pretending like you don't know or staying in the ways that you've coped. Because mm -hmm. I think you've been privy to this as I've kind of gone down this journey of, okay, this stuff doesn't serve me anymore. I really got to kind of clean out the pipes. Here we go. It's painful. Yeah. Very. You know, it's, and totally. it's a grieving process. And I think that's something that people don't really get when they first begin trauma work is that it's really grief work. It's like, it's a grief for all the false faces you've had to wear. And it's a grief for the version of you that is you that had to hide for so long. And then stepping forward in front of somebody, because that's another bit with complex PTSD. You don't trust people. Mm. And so it can take a really long time to find someone, even a therapist, that just is the right type of whatever that you can kind of let go with and trust and then to finally just like cry for all the years you couldn't cry. Mm. One of the things that I've noticed about myself when I show up like as a therapist, particularly with people who have CPTSD, is actually the power of just being very sweet. If you were to Google complex PTSD, the normal thing that you see that everybody on Google says is like DBT, CBT, and EMDR, sure. you know? And... I just want to say that EMDR did not work for me at all. Mm -hmm. It made my symptoms worse mm. because it felt too intense. Mm. It was like too direct. It felt like someone was like a laser was being pointed at me and burning me or something. It was just, it was too much. And one of the things that I've noticed, because there's some people I work with that the power of just being really soft and sweet and giving a lot of space and not being directive mm. because if you have CPTSD, you can tell when people have an agenda. You can mm. feel when someone is uncomfortable with what you're saying. You can tell. And whether or not those projections are true or not, it kind of doesn't matter in the scope of therapy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a really key point, I think. Yeah. And so I say that just to say that there are other ways and I think a way that I'm learning is really valuable with this stuff is the power of just being really attuned and calm and sweet. And the growth that I've seen in a lot of clients when I've just kind of thrown technique out the window and going like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to be here now, you know, Yeah. is that all the moments where the little child was missed start to get repaired. Yeah. 
And often I feel like I'm doing almost nothing. Mm. I'm just being there. Well, you've set me up really beautifully for a topic transition. Oh, great. So thanks, Elizabeth. Professional <laughs> podcasting over here. <laughs> the story, I think, is really important mm -hmm. because it grounds everything we're talking about. And also it's a way in for people who are listening to maybe go, hey, that's not me, but it sounds a little bit like me. Mm -hmm. Or there are these aspects of the story that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. As a contributor to that process you were describing of going, oh, there is actually something going on here that is increasing my sensitivity or is making it hard for me to have a certain kind of emotional relationship with another person that I would really like to have a really wonderful emotional relationship with or something that's just feels like there's something in the basement mm -hmm. that needs to get unearthed or needs to be seen in a different way to lead to some emotional repair, whatever it is for you. So I'd like to talk for a second here just about symptomology in mm -hmm. terms of what your actual experiences are these days. Yeah. What are the consequences of this, essentially? And then we'll talk about what we can do about all of this stuff. Does that sound good? Love it. So you've mentioned a couple of things so far. You've mentioned emotional flashbacks. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like practically for you? Uh, for me, I can. it's a very visual and somatic experience. A flashback that I have had often, particularly with grad school, is being a little kid sitting on my bed and my mom is screaming at me because I didn't do something right mm. as far as homework or mm -hmm. something. I can see exactly my childhood room. I can tell exactly where she's sitting, like everything. It's very vivid. And so there are there are other examples of that. But for yeah. me, it's 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 like we time traveled and boom, I'm right there. I can hear her. I can smell her like boom. Great. So that's one symptom. It's a very, very common one associated mm -hmm. with complex trauma. Another one that you've alluded to is hypersensitivity of various yeah. kinds. You also have some sensory stuff that probably contributes <laughs> to this. Additionally, what does that feel like to you? Like, what does hypersensitivity mean? The best way I can describe it is it feels like you're just a raw, exposed nerve going out through the world. Yeah. It's very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time just staying with myself. Mm -hmm. I can kind of get lost in like an overwhelming sea of sensation it looks like all of a sudden I've reached overload and now I'm in a group of people and I'm dissociating real hard because yeah. I just can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. Or it looks like certain people, I just can't be around them because just how they are puts me on such edge that I I feel sick. Mm. Like I feel physically ill mm -hmm. around them. And to no fault of their own, they could be lovely people. It's just something about how they move, the tone that they have, the quality of their voice, the kind of topics that they bring up. Yeah. just Something ooh. becomes grating. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So maybe particularly before you started doing some of the work that you've done mm -hmm. in, inside of this territory, mm -hmm. how do you think that the residues of this impacted your relationships with other people? I was sort of the standard, you know, you got me maybe like three years and then I cycle through a totally another community and group of people. Mm. I would lean in really quick and hard and I could make close friendships, but they would never really last. I protected myself by also being quite um, angry. Mm. And because I... I would feel like overwhelmed or I'd start to feel uh, anxious in like a group of people who are my friends. And then it would make me angry. Like, you know, the brain tries to figure out, well, why do you feel alone in a group? Why are you feeling like you can't trust these people? Oh, it must be them. Mm -hmm. 
And so I would do that as like a resource, but then the resource ended up doing the exact opposite of what I wanted, Mm. which was further alienate me, make me feel far away. I would never trust people enough to tell them how I actually felt. Yeah. Repressed emotion. Oh yeah. For sure. Oh yeah. yeah. And it would just... I would repress to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. And I, f- I literally couldn't be around them anymore. Yeah. yeah. Because the fear of telling them how I actually felt was way worse than if I just exited. And it's like, you never see me again. I'm like a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> For starters, there's an enormous amount of self-awareness there. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Yep. We, and, worked, we worked hard on yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, these things are developed over time, yeah. you know? And there's a there's a classic line that people use in the academic world, which is research is me-search. Mm-hmm. Basically, people tend to research the things that are closely related to their own experiences. And I, I think a part of the reason that you ended up going to graduate school was to explore your own interior and to get better tools related to all of this stuff and also to work with people and to help people mm-hmm. who also struggled with these experiences. Yeah. Because that intimacy with the experience. We've talked to so many people on the podcast, Pete Walker, Terry Rial, mm-hmm. uh, Gabor Matei, we're going to talk to. And all of these people had their own deeply painful experiences mm-hmm. coming up, which is so interesting and it massively informed the work that they did with other people and gave them a unique perspective that allowed them to be uniquely helpful. Mm-hmm. Because of one of the things you were saying earlier, when you're hypersensitive, you are intimately attuned to whether or not you feel like you can trust somebody. Mm-hmm. It's a trust issue. Yep. And so being able to say, hey, I haven't walked in your shoes, but I've walked in shoes that are a little bit like yours mm-hmm. is just a huge resource for people. This kind of ties into a couple of other symptoms, which is it's really hard to trust people. And then there's often an immense amount of guilt and shame. Yeah. And I think I'm not the only one out there that has felt this, but when someone is trying to comfort you, but it's not comforting you, but you're smart enough to know and you're sensitive enough to know, oh, this person is trying to comfort me. But internally, it's making it worse. I just feel even more alone because this person is not attuning to the type of comfort that my body needs. Mm. And then it builds shame and guilt because Mm -hmm. how could I ever tell to a person who cares about me, you're not comforting me right now. Mm. You're making it worse. Yeah. My impulse is to say F you because it hurts too much. Even though you're doing something that conventionally would be considered comforting. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so because I've experienced that my whole life, I really try with my clients to learn how they need to be comforted. Mm. And I don't take it personal when I mess up. If anything, I own it. And Mm. that's very strange for them, I think, to experience when I go, oh, I missed you there. And it's like, wait, what? Like, oh, no. And it's because we're so used to going through like a cognitive bypass of like, well, I really understood and attuning to the other person. Mm -hmm. And it is a... Strange and alien experience when you have CPTSD to be attuned to Mm. without you trying to meet the other person in the middle at all. It's like you're in your house and then all of a sudden someone's sitting on the couch with you Mm. and you're like, I didn't know this was possible. Yeah. I think that's why it's such a tricky thing to also work with because what works for one person 
what works for the standard that is like comforting and attunement can totally not be it. Yeah. And so it's this sort of practice of, and why I think everyone with CPTSD should go to therapy because nothing is a safer container Mm -hmm. than being able to sit with someone who in many ways is yes, being paid to try to attune to you, Mm -hmm. but it's a safe container for you to also say, you missed me Yeah, and owning this is not my problem anymore. This is not comforting me. Yeah, And that in of itself can be immensely reparative. Mm. So I would love to talk a little bit about what you've done and yeah. also what you're doing with people. Great. Because as part of your graduate school experience, you started working at a clinic, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that correctly. Yep. You particularly specialize in somatic interventions. Yes. And somatic psychology more broadly, which is based on the body, the mm-hmm. soma. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to hear a little bit about what you have found really essential to start with when somebody walks into the room or mm-hmm. walks into the Zoom meeting these days yeah. is maybe a better way to put it, but walks on to Zoom and is like, hey, here's my story. And you go, oh, you, you just start to smell complex PTSD in the air. Mm-hmm. What do you do with them to help them regulate their system or help them feel safe to start with? Yeah, great question. The first thing that I do is I try to achieve safety as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I'm very non-directive. I'm not that person that's going to ask you in the first question, what are your goals? You Mm, know, mm -hmm. because I've been on that end and sometimes I've blinked out because it's too direct. So I'm, I'm very spacious. I am paying way more attention to the person's body than Mm. what they're actually saying to me. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that like, I don't care about your story or what happened to you, but often with CPTSD or people who have experienced any type of trauma in their life, there is sort of a part that you go to, to be able to tell your story that is immediately disconnected awareness from your body. Yeah. You have to dissociate a little bit. Yep. Yeah. It's a painful experience. Yeah. And I will entertain that part. I will give it a place to land over here, but I'm really attuning to the nervous system that's happening in the moment. Mm. And so I kind of take a moment and I describe it as like, I'm kind of like putting my somatic feelers out (laughs) into the ether and I practice a little bit and I'm like, okay, how does my voice literally need to be in tone, pitch and volume for the nervous system to start to settle a bit. Mm -hmm. How close to the camera, how far from the camera do I need to sit for this person maybe to start looking at me more? Mm -hmm. Like what level of eye contact is too much? Like maybe I need to kind of like have a soft gaze, right? And often a big contributor of safety is that when I see activation happening, I pause. Mm. I will stop the person and we go right into a form of resourcing. And I describe it as like, I'm just noticing a little activation or sometimes that's a little too intense for people. And I say energy Mm -hmm. and I just like, why don't we just try to take it down a little bit? I've never had someone say, no, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. Because often even just being seen in that little amount starts to create relief. For yourself. Mm -hmm. So let's say that you're in an environment. Mm-hmm. that has some of the features of what you've described. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a social environment where you feel like you're starting to lose track of the conversation or there are too many people talking or somebody's kind of rubbing you the wrong way. They're in the normal range of behavior. They're not behaving, quote unquote, inappropriately. 
but it's not doing it for you. Mm -hmm. Or you have to engage with a difficult experience, maybe one that activates some old material. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're having to engage with some bureaucratic systems that you feel really uncomfortable with Mm -hmm. or some other kind of thing that just generally activates you emotionally. Yeah. What do you do to resource yourself, to calm your system, to feel safe and comfortable again so you can keep on meeting that challenge? Well, tools that I have in the moment is become aware of your feet. Mm. If you immediately go for us, can you feel your feet? Yeah. Yeah. You immediately start to ground. Mm. And so you start to notice there's a little more weight to the body now when you start to notice your feet. And grounding really helps to start the process of settling the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So so I do that. I will either literally push into my body. I will really pay attention to my feet. I will kind of really feel the weight of my body pooling in my sits bones. Another tool that I use is I shift my awareness. And if something's really overwhelming, I just go, okay, the body has weight and the body breathes. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to work at it. It's just going to do it anyway. And it's a way of like pulling out of maybe a flashback that's about to happen or critical negative thoughts that are like kind of funneling in in a social environment. And now I'm boom, I'm right in the present moment. Mm. Another tool that I use if I need like a total settle is I hug people. (laughs) (laughs) I have my safe people (laughs) sometimes in groups. I have a couple friends that if I just need to like, touch you mm-hmm. or get that physical co-regulation happening, Yeah, I will go there. Mm-hmm. And another tool that I do is I've kind of taken it on that time doesn't exist. It's not mm. real. It's a myth. And when I take that in, uh, there's no need to rush. Yeah. There's yeah, no, because sure. time does, time's not real. Cool. And you could call that a healthy dose of dissociation from the pressures of time. But it brings like a humor to it. Yeah, totally. And it totally settles my nervous system, Mm -hmm. especially when I'm like, oh, there's a time. And I'm like, wait a minute, time's not real. (laughs) 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 And I use that with my clients. Typically, the last 10 minutes of a session is when it gets real spicy and juicy. And sometimes you get those clients that are very mindful of time and they start to panic about it. And I'll just be like, I don't believe in time. And then they're like, wait, what? And I go... Yeah, time doesn't exist. Not here. I go, that's my that's my job. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it becomes a little pattern break for them also. Yes. Totally. And we always have enough time. Mm-hmm. Like the irony is that there's never enough time, but in the moment, there's always enough time. Hmm. It's almost like a Zen koan there. Well, you know, I'm real out there sometimes, <laughs> Forrest. <laughs> there both is it is not yeah, enough time yeah. at the same time. Yeah. But but that's like, um, I take a very chameleon kind of role as a therapist because I know the power of meeting someone where they're at. And I think that's a huge resource in somatics is you become so knowledgeable about the nervous system mm-hmm. and states of activation and being able to really attune and feel. And maybe I have a bit more capacity there because I'm also a traumatized person who has hypersensitivity. And, you know, <laughs> the alphabet soup of being neurodivergent. So there's there's a lot going for me. Um, but, like, there's a language and there's tools that I can really put language to what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, every session looks different with people. Mm-hmm. So those are great tools 
when you're facing a moment of challenge. Mm -hmm. You were talking about whether you got to hug a friend or you got to touch your own body, ground yourself, calm your system, take some deep breaths, move out of time, whatever the practice mm -hmm. is. Then alongside those, those emergency practices, mm -hmm. there's been a much longer and slower process for you of yeah. changing patterns and breaking down patterns of different mm -hmm. kinds, which largely get to you in, in my feeling, and I would love your take on this, mm -hmm. working with fear. Yeah. Because if you think about the nature of PTSD in general, complex or mm -hmm. otherwise, it's about your fear response. You were afraid in a situation or something scary was happening and your body reacted to it. Yeah. And those imprints are then left on you. What are some of the things that you've done through this long process mm -hmm. to work with some of those underlying patterns or to release some of those old experiences? Ooh. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> it's a big question. It's a, it's a big question. Yeah, we can break it down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. One chunk at a time. Yeah, a piece of the pie at a time. Um, I mean, I'm probably a broken record at this point, but finding a therapist that you can actually trust. Mm -hmm. A therapist that you don't feel like you have to take care of either. Someone who can just hold that space for you to totally break down, to say all the things that you've dared never say to another person, mm -hmm. and kind of just getting it out. You have to experience it out, and you yeah. got to be witnessed in it. Mm. Because I have spent, here's a little, you know, a little spicy time. I've spent so many freaking years crying and screaming in my bed by myself doing the stuff I do with my therapist by myself, but it's not therapeutic mm. because I'm in it alone. And it just further like intensifies the old patterns. Yeah. So just being watched without judgment from someone was massive for me. Mm -hmm. And being able to be as like loud and cry and, you know, I mean, there were several times you've seen it where I come out and I'm just wet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just and covered you, in the tears. And you're like, oh, thing. are you okay? Like, yeah. yeah. I'm fine. Okay. I'm, it was great. You know? <laughs> yeah, I had a great session. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> like, it went so well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so the foundation truly is like therapy. Sure. But then outside of that has really been about knowing my own needs and mm. knowing the things that I need in order to fully show up in relationship with other people. And for me, that often looks like I need alone time. I need to sometimes be like, babe, I love you dearly. Can you please get the frack out of the house? Because <laughs> I just can't. It has happened. Because I just can't be around another nervous system. Yeah. Because my body is so autonomic on attuning to somebody else. It doesn't even matter when you're in the next room. Fun fact, complex PTSD mostly comes from not having your needs met in childhood. Yeah. If you think about it, <laughs> right? Your needs were not met in childhood. And mm -hmm. then, so what does this lead to for a lot of kids? Well, they have a choice, right? They can either be punished by their caregiver or they can get exiled from the system or they can not have as many needs. Mm -hmm. And so classic feature of complex PTSD is the suppression of normal needs. Yep. Not complicated ones, not hard ones, really normal ones. And so a major part of the healing journey for a lot of people is about accepting the presence of your needs. And facing the terror of actually saying what you yeah, need. Yeah, expressing them, totally. Oh boy. And I think that's been, and to this day is still like the practice because, you know, I feel very safe with you. Yeah. You know, surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, but still, mostly in context of like 
people outside of just like our little system we have together where I am petrified of telling people how I actually feel Yeah. or like, this doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. I need you to interact with me this way. I still can't do that. Yeah. You know, because there's something so threatening about it and so terrifying that I'm still processing through just thinking about it. Mm. Like I'm I'm not ready to act on it yet. I'm mm. I'm already trying to metabolize the nervous system activation that just happens with me even saying that into this microphone right now. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the challenges of this is that you can have people who can be your safe resourcing person in these ways, whether it's a partner or it's a good friend or if it's appropriate, if it's a family member, if it's somebody out in the world, whoever, if it's your therapist, whoever it is. Mm -hmm. And we have a relationship where I basically go, okay, great. Mm -hmm. If you have a specific need or if you need me to be a little bit of a different way about something, particularly if it's not stepping on my toes in some kind of massive way, Um, but it never is and it's always fine. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy for me to say yes. With people out in the world, sometimes they're going to say no. Mm-hmm. And I would love your take on this. Sometimes it can be a restorative practice, actually, to have somebody essentially say no and then to not have yourself explode as a result of it. Where, yeah, they said no and everyone went on going on. And like that is like, a, oh, the dreaded experience happened and it didn't destroy me. Mm-hmm. And that can probably be a little useful, too. I think this is really interesting territory Mm -hmm. because in this moment, even just hearing you say that, right, I'm having a reaction. Okay. I'm having a mild trauma response. I'm actually glad this is happening because now I get to kind of be very like transparent in the moment. You saying that to me directly Mm -hmm. in that way of like, this is reparative and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's too direct. Okay. And this is kind of the thing I've noticed as I've worked with more folks who have CPTSD, mm-hmm. where the defense gets yeah. triggered. Yeah, totally. And it's like, oh, hell no. You know, like, <laughs> like hell, like, yeah. and here's yeah. the thing. I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And I have enough awareness to know there have been moments <laughs> where that has occurred. Yes. Particularly around my email. Email used to freak <laughs> me out. And then... I cried into the floor one day and I've been checking my email ever since. And there have been moments when, oh my God, that email is terrifying, but I get through it and I do it. Yeah. So yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. But my nervous system, even in this moment, because it's like the delivery was the way it was. Yeah. There's a part of me that's very straight, very laid out. Yeah. And excuse me for using some, you know, choice words here, but that just wants to say you. Yeah, you know, totally. Like, and immediately tries to create distance. Mm. And that's a defensive response it's against a, pain. It's a defense against pain yeah. because I'm already on fire. Why am I going to like make, like, why are you going to make me touch it? Yeah, you're, you're, you're telling me it's going to make me better to be more on fire. Yeah. Like, what, are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, crazy talk. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, I'm also self-aware enough to know, like, I'm not on fire. Yeah. But that's what the body starts to say. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think it's because a lot of CPTSD comes from childhood trauma and you're too young to reason with yourself out of it. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. To, to highlight a part of this, this comes from a guy named Bruce Perry, who we've had on the podcast a bunch in the past. Other people I'm a have big also. fan. Yeah, big fan. If you're listening to this, I'm such a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send the episode to Bruce. I'm sure you'll love it. He is the most wonderful guy also as an aside. But yeah, so his work really focuses on development yeah. uh, and particularly the the largely sequential development of the brain where younger parts of the brain are kind of more down toward the bottom and then the older parts of it get layered on top mm-hmm. and people can get essentially trapped at a level of development where the the house of the brain, the more complex floors mm-hmm. were built by these lower floors that were themselves dysregulated, Yes, which leads to a dysregulated structure as the whole because- you essentially have a drunk contractor building your house. Yep. And that's like not a great vibe for anybody. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it speaks to a little bit of what you were talking about there in terms of that like younger, more vulnerable part that is feeling very threatened by this experience and doesn't have the language to talk about it. And hey, maybe it's a good piece of advice also for people who are listening, who are maybe in a relationship with somebody who's gone through some challenging experiences in the past, or they want to know how to be more supportive of people who have those same kinds of experiences. And particularly for me, I'm a pretty cognitive person. Yeah. And so I, I am love pretty, that about you. Oh, well, thank you, babe. Yeah. So I'm pretty directive. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty top down. I'm pretty thinky. Yeah. And this leads to a way of talking about things that is often accurate. Yes. But it's not necessarily sensitive. Yep. And and I've worked on this a lot <laughs> to become almost as accurate while being way more sensitive mm-hmm. or to maintain my accuracy while also increasing my sensitivity because I value accuracy. Yeah. And so it's a good little moment there as a way of talking about this territory where you go, yes, Forrest, you're accurate, but maybe you're not being super sensitive there. Or maybe there's a way to frame this that somebody might be more receptive to. And to speak in the moment, this little part inside of me right now yeah. that felt that just a minute mm-hmm. ago, if it could actually like say something, mm-hmm. it would say, why are you getting rid of me? Mm-hmm. I'm the one that keeps her together. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're accurate. You're saying all these true things, but like this part is not working on an accurate level. Totally. This part is is dysfunctional, mm-hmm. but this part is like kept me safe for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the work that I do often with clients is it's like, it's not helpful to always be accurate, but it's always helpful to be sensitive. Yeah. Well, that's really sweet for starters and yeah. very touching. And also, I think, again, can be helpful to people often, but not always men. <laughs> often, often men mm-hmm. who can have this again, very like accuracy-driven orientation. Yeah. And there's often a phrase that you'll hear people say, some version of, well, I was right. Yeah. Or like, well, why are they mad? Everything I said was true. And it's like, well, you're missing the point, dude. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, you're missing the point because there's that level of sensitivity or couching things in a way that somebody can actually receive. Mm-hmm. I just feel very overwhelmed by how much I love you in this moment. Ah. But, you know, <laughs> nothing new. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Nothing That's new. That's very touching. You know, I just had a moment Thanks, of like, wow. Um, <laughs> but something came forward also as you were saying that, mm-hmm. which is I need someone to be accurate. Mm-hmm. It's important. Yeah, no, I hear you. It's important. Yeah. 
But sometimes my window of capacity mm-hmm. for accuracy, mm-hmm. I don't have any more. Mm-hmm. I don't have any more to You're give. Full. I'm yeah. full. And this is also what makes complex PTSD complex to work with because some days I'm here for the Spockian, you know, let's be really logical space. But like, I often struggle to articulate this at any point in my life. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe because we're just in this particular kind of therapeutic space, even in this moment, that's just creating some space for this to come forward. Mm-hmm. But my whole life, I've had to hide parts of me that are desperate to be seen mm-hmm. and desperate for just someone to be there with them. Mm-hmm. And so there can be moments, and I think this can happen with many people, even folks that don't have CPTSD, where you're starting your work, you're doing the journey, and this tender part of you, this younger part is now coming forward, and it's terrifying, you know? And you reach out from that part. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm not reaching out to you as a 30-year-old graduate student. Yeah, totally. I'm reaching to you out as a three-year-old. Yeah. And so when I met with like a lot of reason, a lot of like, well, we should do this and you just got a blah, blah, blah. It's like, I'm too- You don't speak that language. I'm too young for that. Yeah, totally. And I think that can be a really vulnerable thing for a lot of people. And I see this too. Men who have CPTSD, I think it can even be more challenging because there's this cultural push to not be sensitive, to not be vulnerable, to be logical and reasonable. But then you inevitably leave the part of you that's holding the hurt behind. Mm. And that's where the work is, is you got to let someone hold the part of you that's holding the hurt Mm. and give it to somebody else for a time. So then you can really play and be with this younger part unencumbered. Mm. And there's a term for it. It's called indwelling when the baby's nervous system can attach to the primary caregiver's nervous system. And it's almost like there's a moment of enmeshment where the baby can't tell the difference between itself. But through that indwelling, they then realize they're an individual. Mm. They find their soul. I think so much of what I'm trying to say in this moment is that the work that I have done has been figuring out who I was always meant to be. Mm-hmm. Like literally finding my soul. Oh God, the sweetness is coming. Oh God, <laughs> here it comes. It's coming here for it you. Comes. But I, I think like a part of that is that I've had people that I can indwell with. Mm. The little baby that didn't get it when I was younger. Like there's parts of me that can attach to parts of you. Mm-hmm. And you can see it. Mm-hmm. Like I think you've seen it. The times when you've really leaned in, when I'm real messed up, crying, like overwhelming. And you just hold me. Yeah, totally. And then all this space gets created. Mm. Then I can actually tell you how I feel. Mm-hmm. But if you immediately go into like, tell me what you feel. Yeah. I can't. Yeah, there's nothing there. No. Totally. Start by joining is probably the single most useful phrase that I've ever learned in my life. Start by joining. Start by joining. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are trying to figure out how to support other people, if you got a partner who's on the sensitive side for whatever reason, if you just want to be a better relator, single most useful phrase I can think of, start by joining. Start mm-hmm. with emotional relationship. I see you. I hear you. I feel you. Okay. 
-hmm. Spend some time there. Mm -hmm. Don't just do it to check the box. Gotta hang out for a minute. And then you could go into problem solving. Yep. But if you start with problem solving, as I have painfully <laughs> learned in my life, you are doomed to failure. <laughs> and that's not just with you. That's yeah, with yeah, yeah. everybody. Mm -hmm. Maybe particularly with you, but you know, with everybody. Well, we all do it. Yeah, totally. Because when things get uncomfortable, we want to fix it. We want to fix the problem. We want to take the pain away. Yep. Yeah. And I've definitely fallen into this with some of my clients where I, I too quickly have moved into mm. trying to fix it mm -hmm. or trying to, all right, yeah, let's, let's do the work. And I'm very grateful that I learned this lesson in the beginning of my practicum, because now when I have that impulse, it's like, oh, I'm resisting mm, hanging out joining. in discomfort. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm resisting joining where this person is at because mm. I don't want to feel this hurt. And in many ways, as I have processed a lot of the hurt inside myself, it gives me more capacity to sit with other people in their hurt. Because mm. it's like, okay, I know how to do this. I've gone through it. And this is kind of linking back to what you said, yeah, right? Totally. I've done it. Yeah. You know, I've faced the dragon. I can do it again. Mm -hmm. It's not going to kill me. Yeah. And I guarantee it's not going to kill you. Mm. Well, Elizabeth, this was really lovely. I always have so much fun. I feel like you're such a rock star. <laughs> oh, and sometimes you. I get wow. nervous. Like, oh, wow, I really got to say stuff profound. And then I say, you know, derp or derp. <laughs> well, I think you say a lot of very profound stuff. Oh, And I really like doing this with you. And it's so too. great. And the tone of these, when we've done, we, we did a previous one on PMDD. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that we'll do other things in the future. The tone is often a little bit different when we're doing this together as opposed to when I'm doing it with my dad or yeah. doing it with a guest yeah. for obvious reasons, including that we're just sitting in the same room together, which is often not the case. But I really like it. And I hope that the people listening like it too, even though it's a little bit different than some of our normal episodes. And I just had a really great time today talking with you. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah. I had, it's kind of odd to say, but I had such a blast talking about <laughs> my trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, there's so much, there's so much to unpack there too, right? But, but but if we can, just before we leave, this is kind of the joy that can happen. Yeah. Even now, just by like what we shared today, like I feel more relaxed. Mm -hmm. I'm more settled. I feel like you really get me, mm -hmm. and it's not like I know you get me, but like I'm feeling that you get me. Yeah. 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 And I just think that there's something that's so reparative. And the, the fancy term for this is creating a coherent narrative of childhood. Mm -hmm. But the simple way to put it is just telling your story to people. Yep. And relating to that story as a whole person, everything that went into the creation of who you are up to this point. And then big question, what's the next act? Like, what do you want to do from here? Mm -hmm. And I understand that that is a little to-do attached to it, mm -hmm. but I think it's actually a big emotional process for most people. And it yeah. gets to the emotional relationship that they want to have with themselves and with everything that's happened to this point. Yep. Yeah. So maybe on that note, it was great to do this with you today. Thanks so much for doing it. Yeah, thank you. Today's conversation on complex PTSD with Elizabeth began with a description of her family environment. These were the circumstances that she was growing up under that led her to develop complex PTSD. And one way to simplify and think about complex PTSD 
is that it occurs when your needs are not consistently met over an extended period of time. Often in childhood, it's generally a developmental diagnosis, but that can certainly happen later in life as well. And there are a couple of reasons that complex PTSD is usually developed in childhood. The first one is that kids are essentially trapped much of the time. So if they're in an environment that is not meeting their needs, they can't just leave and find a different environment. The second is that children are very vulnerable. They are balls of clay being molded by their circumstances much of the time, and the developing brain is very easily changed by the things that happen to it. One way to think about complex PTSD is that it arises when somebody's needs are not met over a long period of time. And those could be the need for safety, and maybe there's a direct threat to somebody's safety based on physical or emotional abuse. It could be your need for emotional nurturance, particularly kids who really need to feel like they are prized by their parents. Maybe you didn't get that. Maybe it could be the need that kids have to be enough all on their own without needing to fulfill a role inside of the family. And that was one of the things that really came up in Elizabeth's story. Elizabeth essentially needed to manage up. And you see this a lot in complex PTSD cases where the child becomes parentified. They become the parent to their parent. And one of the things that we highlighted in Elizabeth's story was how there were aspects of it that were really very normal. Parents who were going through their own struggles, who needed to overcome their own challenges, who did the best they could to shield her in many ways from the environment that surrounded her. But just because a story is normal doesn't mean that it's good enough. And you often hear some version of, you have a great childhood compared to ours. And that might well be the case, but again, that doesn't prevent somebody from developing long-term issues based on the experiences that they had. And we talked for a while about what some of those issues are, the issues that Elizabeth experiences individually, and then the issues that people with complex PTSD tend to experience more generally. And these include things like intense emotional flashbacks, where Elizabeth talked about flashing back to experiences of her parents yelling and screaming at her when she was a kid. It can include emotional and sensory sensitivity, where you feel hypervigilant toward the world around you. It can also often include a lot of repressed emotions, where you feel unsafe expressing yourself, and things get really bottled up until they reach a breaking point where they all spill out in some way that is often a little problematic. People who struggle with complex PTSD often experience also intense feelings of guilt and shame. And it can also be really challenging, and I, I say this as the partner of somebody who is dealing with this, it, it can be challenging sometimes to comfort them because normal range ways of comforting another person can come across as problematic, controlling, or just not quite the right way that that person wants to be related to. And part of this comes from the ways in which complex PTSD traps a person in their earlier experience. It can trap them in the period of time that these painful experiences are happening. So the hurt child emerges in adulthood. One of the things that Elizabeth said that's really going to stick with me is this idea of trauma work is grief work, where you're going back and you are grieving for the experiences that you went through. And that can be a really painful process for people. So understandably, what can support them in going through and doing that work is a huge foundation of feeling safe in the moment. And that safety is really the, the essential basis for any kind of long-term positive change here. 
Elizabeth specializes in somatic work with people, and feeling into the body is a major part of what she does with them. One of the things that she mentioned to me in the moment was, can you feel your feet? Can you ground yourself when you're going through a painful experience or you're having an emotional flashback? She also really highlighted the ways in which the healing process for her, but then also more broadly, occurs in relationship. And this is one of the ways where therapy can be really helpful, where it's just not enough to go through it in your room. Screaming into the pillow was the example that Elizabeth gave. You really have to be witnessed by other people because the injury that you experienced was relational. So your body has to relearn that relationships themselves can be sources of safety, sources of joy, rather than sources of suffering. Earlier, I mentioned how complex PTSD often arises from not having our needs met in childhood. And so a big part of the healing process, a lot of the time, is accepting and expressing a person's needs in healthy ways. This includes reclaiming the normal needs that somebody has, needs to be witnessed, needs to be related to, needs to feel safe and secure inside of their relationships. Then at the end, we talked about the importance of starting by joining. And that really came through, I think, in our own relationship, where I had a comment that I thought was pretty accurate about how, for people, they can learn that facing the dreaded experience, whatever that dreaded experience is, won't cause them to dissolve. And they'll learn that they can overcome those challenges when they emerge for them in the world. And then Elizabeth really allowed a part of her to step forward where she went, okay, Forrest, that's that's accurate, but there's something about the way that you're saying that that feels a little too directive and it's coming across as harsh for me. And we were able to talk through that and workshop it together by joining with each other, seeing the alternate perspective, and then coming to a soft landing that felt really good for the two of us. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Elizabeth. Of course, I always love talking with her, and it was great to have her on the podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to leave a rating and a positive review, really helps us out. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, wherever you're listening or watching it right now. And then if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. For just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.